Welcome to the Writing Western Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. Today we have a short conversation with Danae poet Tacey M. Atsidi about her recently published collection of poems entitled Rain Scald. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. In each episode of this podcast, we host a conversation with an author or scholar of new work that explores the North American West. Disciplines will vary, the length of conversations will likely range dramatically, but we hope that each conversation will introduce you to new work, provoke as many questions as they provide answers, and inspire you to learn more about the North American West as a region, as well as its peoples, environments, histories, literature, and so forth. To learn more about the Red Center, our programming, funding opportunities for research and events, find us at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. Follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can find a list of podcast episodes and listen on the Red Center website and clicking on the Writing Westward Podcast tab at the top of the page. You can also listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and various other podcast networks and distributors. Thanks for listening. Tacey M. Atsidi is Diné, or Navajo, of the Sleep Rock people born for the Tangle people. While she does not present herself as an author of Western poetry per se, her work is perhaps more profoundly grounded in Western landscapes, histories, and traditions than any other work you might pick up whether native or non-native. If you spend some time with her poetry, you will quickly understand what I mean by this. We are a bit short on time for our conversation today, but the poems she reads and discusses will leave you wanting to explore further. Atsidi is originally from Cove, Arizona and Kirtland, New Mexico. She holds undergraduate degrees from BYU and the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe and an MFA in creative writing from Cornell University. Her first book, Rain Scald, was published in 2018 by the University of New Mexico Press and adds to a large body of published work in poetry and creative writing in multiple collections, journals such as Poetry, Red Ink, Prairie Schooner, Literary Hub, The Kenyon Review, and the American Indian Culture and Research Journal, and many others. Her work has earned her such accolades as the Truman Capote Creative Writing Fellowship, the Course in Browning Poetry Prize, the Morningstar Creative Writing Award, and the Philip Fronde Prize. She currently serves as the Director of Native American Programming and Events at This Is The Place Heritage Park in Salt Lake City. Today we talk about her background, where she comes from, how she approaches her writing, and this new collection of poems she recently published with the University of New Mexico Press, Rain Scald. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast, Tacey. It's a real pleasure to have you here, and I know you've had a very long day here on BYU campus, so I appreciate you squeezing us in here at the end of the day. Thank you for having me. Um... I've already described a little bit about you in the introduction, um, so listeners are kind of aware of of what we're going to be talking about today. Kind of the game plan of where I thought we would go is to first talk about you a little bit in your background, talk about your approach to poetry. We're going to have have you read um, a few. You you identified a couple that you'd be interested in reading. And then after that, I want to talk about some of the imagery that you use um, in kind of describing place and landscape. I know you've been interviewed and mentioned uh, in other venues that you don't pitch yourself as a Western poet. You know, you're not a cowboy poet. It's not your, <laughs> not your identity. Um, yeah. But I think anyone who hears these poems or picks up your book will, will immediately zero in on your sense of place 
and and landscape that's very specific to uh, the desert southwest so yeah it's funny you say western folk because I, I mean i think about the west but i never thought of like cowboy like i yeah um so what's what's funny about it too is um my dad's a cowboy so he was a bull rider and um his father was a bareback bronc rider and and so it's funny that you say that because I always wanted to be a barrel racer, I, you know, and <laughs> we just never did. Um, but anyway, yeah. So. Um, well, maybe you need to branch out a little bit into some specific cowboy poetry, and then you can. Yeah. I, I maybe, maybe vicariously live your bronco riding dreams of your childhood. That exactly. Way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was thinking too. Um, you know, today I had a reading earlier here in the library, and. Um, you know, sometimes I feel like I have to kind of say, like, oh, well, sorry, I don't write happy poetry, you know, sorry, not sorry, like, this is what it is for me now, and, um, but I was just thinking that maybe that would help me write some happier poetry. Hmm. <laughs> I used to be a songwriter, and I'm not good at writing happy songs, it's, it's kind of just what comes out. Yeah, you know? that's true. <laughs> well, would you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and kind of your background? Yeah, so um, I grew up mostly in the Four Corners, in Kirtland, New Mexico. It's in northwestern uh, New Mexico, and it's a border town to the Navajo Nation. I was actually born in Logan. My dad was going to Utah State, um, but we ended up down in that area, and in Red Valley, Arizona, just over the border, mm -hmm. and then his family, where I say I'm from, is Cove, Arizona, and it's this tiny little area. It's just kind of nestled in the mountains. Even a lot of Navajos have never heard of it. So they're like, I don't know where that is. Um, Along the Chescas then? Yeah, just kind of on, on the, the north side? end. North end, uh, east side. Okay. East side of the Chescas, yeah, on the north end. Okay. Uh-huh. And um, so it's just southwest of Shiprock, about 45 minutes. And um, But mostly grew up in Kirtland, New Mexico, so that border town. And, um, you know, when you're young, you just live how you live and you just that's your normal and so um I went to public school uh, all growing up and and then in high school <clears throat> my dad told me about this high school in Farmington New Mexico called Navajo Preparatory School so I applied and got in there and um that's where I kind of really took off and I and I, I don't know exactly what you want me to jump into, but... That's where you took off as a poet, you No, or? I just, I mean, just even as a person uh -huh. and, and, um, and everything. So, you know, when you're at the age of a middle school person, um, you know, I had noticed that, like, I knew I was smart, like, intellectual, like, I, I was very capable of getting A's and, you know, everything like that. But I also noticed that there were certain opportunities that weren't afforded to me. And and it was about the time I was in 7th or 8th grade where I noticed, like, why am I not in that class? Because I had been with those people, those smart white white people, non-Native people. I had been with them all growing up in certain classes, and then it got to a point where it was like, oh, no, you're not with them anymore, but they're going to go on to this higher course uh, or courses or classes. And... Um, so the preparatory school kind of reopened some of those yeah. opportunities for you? Yeah, it did. So, um, I, you know, I wasn't being held back for, 
Um, like no opportunity was like not afforded to me at Navajo Prep. It was all about me and I just took advantage of everything. So did being there in Farmington for high school change how you viewed your hometown area? Yeah, it, it kind of did. It, that was the... I mean, that's kind of the big city, right? Well, yeah, for that's that, right, what, for that area. town. That's what we call town. The, the town, okay. I'm going to town. Yeah, where <laughs> are you guys going? We're going to town. You know, that's where you go grocery shopping and whatever. But, but yeah, that's, that's where it kind of opened up for me a lot of opportunities. And, you know, like I said, up until then I had been going to public school, so there was, you know, mixed races. But when I went to Navajo Preparatory School, it was mixed tribes. And so we were only Navajo and Pueblo and um, Apache, mostly Navajo. So yeah, so I, I just had a really great time there. Um, tons of support for everything. Um, I did, gosh, it would take me forever to say everything that I did there. Just well, I heard you saying earlier today you did, you did poetry slams, like you yeah. traveled around. And yeah, I did poetry slams and I was the editor-in-chief of the yearbook and the newspaper and... Um, the American Indian Science and Engineering Society, the, I went to weekend school. I mean, I was <laughs> geeky. I, you know, I love that kind of stuff, but, um, American, American Indian Higher Education Consortium. Um, I played softball, varsity softball, uh, all four years and, um, was on the poetry team. I sang with a powwow group called Morning Light and a Navajo traditional group called Hayos Kosh Banatikin, and um, yeah, ten, like tons You're of other a busy, stuff. A busy yeah. high schooler. Yeah. And then you came here to BYU for your undergrad. Yep. So when you arrived here, were you already thinking poetry was your thing? Well, I, I, I think I knew that I loved it because, you know, I had the team um, that I had had in high school, but I thought, well, okay, now I got to you know, put my big girl pants on and, you know, I'm going into the world. And so I thought computer science, like that's what you do. That's the big thing coming up. And, and so, I mean, I was only declared that for maybe like half a semester. And I was like, I don't even like computer, like computer science. Yeah. And anyway, so I didn't even end up taking one class. I, I was like, I like English. I'm just going to study English. And so that's what I did. Um, but uh, the transition coming from Navajo Prep, where I was in a class of 29 students for my graduating class, to I can't even remember what the numbers are here, what they were about 20 years Ten, ago. Tens of thousands. Yeah, yeah at least 30,000, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, it was definitely a culture shock. and um, But I had gotten into writing uh, some more. Like, you know, I knew it was something that I wanted to do while I was here, so... I took classes um, from Scott Hatch and Jim Barnes, and uh, Jim Barnes was a visiting professor, he's uh, Choctaw descent, and um, I'm trying to remember who else, what other writing classes I took, but I, I, I also remember Lance Larson's short story, that one really stood mm. out for me, and, and some other classes here. And then you um, went um, to Cornell mm -hmm. for an MFA? Yeah. Was it? Yeah, so... Um, but and that, after, was that, that wasn't at that point specifically to, to write. Right. right. So when I was at BYU, um, one of my professors, Fred Pinniger, he was like an honors class for my freshman writing course. 
and he was the one who who introduced what an MFA was to me and what I could do with writing and and so um, when I left here I had studied English but I knew my my writing was kind of eh, you know <laughs> um, but I had gone to Taiwan after I graduated and I taught English there for a year and then I thought well I want to get ready for graduate school but I knew like I said my writing wasn't great so um, I had always wanted to attend the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe and so I decided to go there just to prepare my portfolio for my MFA application um, so that's what I did um, after Taiwan I moved to Santa Fe and I started taking classes and man that place is special that's like a mm -hmm. really special amazing place um, I can't say enough good about it and just really fostered my writing and you know because I had to take all all genres of yeah. it and I really enjoyed that but I still loved poetry and so yeah from there I went on uh, to get my MFA at, at um, Cornell in Ithaca New York in creative writing with my concentration in poetry and that's where some of these poems from Rain Skull kind of have their genesis right? most of them most all of if them, not all of them period. yep let's talk about about this collection, you have it divided into three parts. Mm -hmm. um, I think the ones we're reading are all from part three, but do you oh, want to just kind of give us the thumbnail of of what the three parts are? Yeah, so um, the first part is called Seyit, and the second is Gorge Dweller, the third is Tohe. And Seyit, um, Seh means rock, and Yet or Yeet means inside of. And so it means canyon, essentially, or deep inside the rock. And so I'll let that metaphor stand on its own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so those, the, those stories, or, not, or those poems, there are what I deem as deep inside the rock. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> Gorge Dweller um, is mostly centered... Uh, on the location in Ithaca, New York, in the gorges that Cornell sits on and surrounding gorges in the area and how I came to find solace in the gorges. Um, one of the things that I had a hard time with when I was in New York was not being able to see the sunrise and see the sunset and almost even the sky for that matter. Like. I would hike and hike and hike, and as high as I would get, I still couldn't see the land. It was just trees, and that was really hard for me. So I um, went to the gorges, and they kind of opened up for me and made living bearable sometimes. Mm -hmm. But there was also um, the unfortunate events where there were some suicides that had happened when I was there, and um, these poems engorged dweller explore those deaths and kind of how I processed them and so Tohe the third Tohe is an extinct um, Navajo ceremony and it um, it's used for calling the rain healing paralysis resuscitating from drowning in deafness and handling dreams and so <clears throat> um, a lot of the pieces in, in that section have to do with um, other experiences that call for 
ceremony in those ways. Well, why don't we have you read, um, the one we, I definitely want to get to was In Strips, mm -hmm. which is, uh, I mean, people will have to, to look this up or pick up the book to see how this is arranged, because there's kind of a visual element here as well uh, that won't, maybe won't come across through the reading. Um, but do you want to go ahead and read this for us and then maybe talk about it a little bit? Or maybe, or maybe we'll do another, another one right afterwards. Sure. In Strips. One. Fingertip need. Neck. Stitch issue, sentence tear, this rick-rack struggle, line by blossom, rest on fault, in the spread, wrap, sat on, my wrist, the roundup, crosswire threads, warp and weft effect, when we gather, muscle like crevice, Bless us upstitch, song, yeah. Nose of mountain, collar, yeah, or ugly. Two, bark, take care, language we use, push it around, or, or, or. Beyond that, gather the hip, or, wrinkle, rub flower, or compass, or smear nickels into clavicle, pick moments, settle into letters, clip them, break, rickrack, word at the bottom, these are elbows, says, either page, jeans over the eye, like stars, skin, quilt, Look up. Three. Let me respond. Stick out our ribs. Tearing course. Private as armpit. I am sorry. Say that again. Sip where the skin gathers. Let me swing. Storytell. A land keeps in our strife. Pass by pass, know there's infant within the rocks, within the guts. Lava rock is not lava, rock but blood. Know of monsters leap in all, fury from ridge to fall. Water trace, forehead, nose, chin to breasts, tummy to knees. Four. But this, this is not a mountain, is seam rip seam. Stress on the fold is not a gorge, a line is walls in backstitch, bark of wrinkle, what binds the raw edge, the sashing and piecing of built up or collapse of create applique, hills to sky, land, all together words like clouds, sentence like mountain sack, gone with the grain in strides of bark. I don't, I don't know if this is the way your interviewers always react, but your words, um, 
elicit a lot of emotions in me and a lot of feelings, but I can never, I have yet to be able to put my finger on what the emotion is or what the feeling is, which makes me want to go back and read it again. I saw it, not that, the, that your, your poetry is mysterious, but it is, it's powerful, but I, I can't grasp quite why. Just in this one poem or in... In, 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 in lots of them. Oh, okay. Some of them are more explicit where I I can see what's going on. Yeah. Um, but there's a power in, in your imagery and words. One thing I'm really interested in this one is this, this this kind of relationship between how you talk about kind of corporal, like like bo- bodies, right? And then how you talk about land and, mm-hmm. and rock and, you know, geology. When you, when, you, when you go home to Cove or these other places and you're driving around and, and you look at the scenery and the landscape and the mountains and the canyons, do you think that you are looking at them diff- more differently than, than other people are? I think for sure. Like, absolutely. Um, so land, for me, it, uh, it holds stories. So every time I see a rock formation, like when I go home, I know stories about that land formation, and those stories are triggered by seeing, by going, by going home, and so I retell my tell myself those stories or remember them being told to me. Um, you know, there's there was a story in Prairie Schooner that was published called "To the Whirlwinds," and there's a formation out in Red Valley, right, just east of Cove, and. Um, and it's said to be like the thumb of one of the monsters that mm. lived in the area. And so, you know, just that land formation evokes creation, invokes, um, you know, all of those things for me. And wonder, you know, wonder about the narration, you know, the narrative of that monster and how his hand came to be there and and all of these things. And, and in that story to the whirlwinds, um, you know, I it's it's a fictional slash nonfiction piece where I um, create memories of you know what it what it was like where when my dad got the news that my mother had you know was in a in a horrific car accident where she ended up passing away where he's taking his runners around them you know around that rock formation mm-hmm. he's running and and so. Um, the, there are places all over Cove and, you know, home where, you know, you've heard stories like, oh, there was, you know, a family and this is when when they had horses and wagons and before automobiles came and they had a sick baby and they were trying to make it to the hospital and shiprock and didn't make it in time and so they had to bury their baby right there. Over in this spot. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, like, you know, all these areas they hold these stories for you and you know for me that creates a kinness a kinship and a closeness to the land and it's it's very uh, personal and intimate hmm. for me for that reason i've driven around the four corners a lot and it's one of my favorite regions and from when i was in my early 20s and i kind of started exploring that area and it's always had this sense as I was looking out over this, I mean, to, I mean, I grew up in Northwest Washington, right? So this is like a very foreign, yeah. <laughs> very uh, strange landscape. And what just made me so kind of obsessed with the area was this sense that 
that, that, that there was something in the landscape that uh, there was something important there. There was something to be known. Um, and and I, I didn't know what it was, but it gave it kind of this allure and made me just so curious about the area. And and, and, and I think maybe you're hinting at maybe, maybe what I was feeling is that there, there are stories, yeah. not just yours, but stories of, of so many different families and peoples that are embedded in centuries and centuries of this landscape. Um, and I don't know, maybe maybe that gets out to some of the us observers who are, you know, outsiders driving through. We, we, we feel that perhaps. Um, what about when you're in other places in the desert southwest where you don't have a personal history, but, yeah. but there's these similar kind of, you know, red rock landscapes. Do you, do you project on them stories and ideas? Not often. No. So for you, it's really specific to those places where you grew up. Yeah. And, and part of that too, for me is, is respect. So I, when I was living in Santa Fe, I, I was having this really hard time when, one time, I don't remember what it was I was struggling with, but, um, you know, I knew that that was Pueblo land, mm-hmm. like, and I felt a kinship, but not a, not a strong connection. Like I knew that wasn't quote unquote my land. And I had to drive home and drive to Cove and just be, you know. And even here, like, I'm, I try to always be respectful of, like, Ute and Goshu and Northwestern Battle Shoshone. And I wonder about their stories, but I don't often project um, just because I think personally it's disrespectful to mm. write those. But What makes me think of, uh, I don't know if you've, read Jared Farmer's book. It's actually on the bookshelf right behind you called On Zion's Mount, but it's all kind of about how white settlers here in Utah County projected kind of what one of the points is making is how they projected kind of these made up native stories on Mount Timpanogos, right? And they, and they, they, they kind of invented um, a history and projected it on the landscape, um, which is something that I don't think, um, I mean, we all, we all create our own histories and our own connections right. and relationships with the land. Um, yeah. But. And that's, and I've been thinking a lot about the West in general and land in general and, um, you know, tribes moved around, you know, we haven't always been here. We have always been here and we haven't always been here, if that makes any yeah. sense. You know, it's winter time now, um, so I can talk freely about creation stories for Deneth, but, um... You know, we, we've moved through different worlds. And so that's what I say when I say we haven't always been here. The four, fourth? Um, yeah, some people believe we're in the fourth world and some do not believe we're in the fifth world. So, um, <clears throat> you know, and, and we might not always be here. Mm. So, I, so I think about that too. You know, I think about not just tribes in the past, you know, some hundred thousand years but even before that and what the land does hold and but I think that either way it's sacred like I I I just a big believer that um and it's it's funny not funny but like the the earth is our mother like she provides for us everything that we need and I it seems cliche but it's, yeah it but, seems but it's cliche not, yeah, yeah, yeah but that's what you mean by funny yeah right? that's what I mean and I don't want to seem cliche, but when it comes down to it, like everything that we have is from the earth. Um, and so I just, I feel like, you know, 
how could a mother leave her children? Like, she can't. She's always with us. So. I want to have you read at least one more. Um, I've started a couple kind of Desert Southwest projects because I want an excuse to go wander around the Desert Southwest more. But one thing that really fascinates me about the landscape is how it's often defined by the absence of water, right? It's dry. It's a desert. There's like, well, there's not water there. Yeah. But yet, the, the land formations themselves quite often are defined by water, right? They were carved out by water. And I'm really fascinated by this kind of paradoxical relationship between desert rock and canyon and water. And, and your book is called Rain Scald, and, and water and rain and clouds um, come up a, a lot in, in a lot of your poems. Um, I was wondering if you could read this one, Leaping Ridge, for us. Yeah. Maybe this poem doesn't get at it like you think perhaps the other one does, but if you could talk kind of about, about, about water a little bit. Okay. Leaping Ridge. The crescent tells of a night that once poured pale tiles out of the sky, a pale tilt, whoosh. Night blooms from Spanish dagger, sores of water and ash. There is no smoke spilt or stitches along fibers, land to blue. Wall where water carves a tear, a wilted pluck or flower canal. Gourd full, spew at the tongue. Watch how a sheer quilt freezes in patch, in dune. Smother, rock fold, once cradled a mother in the hilt. Dipped her in descent. Yucca curl. Last gawk went in search of her back, where after the jolt her infant swayed. At every crumb, at every crumble of limb and mud, such a small thud, thud, thud. I didn't realize there was so much water in that. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so this poem um, is about a formation in Cove and I think we called it Leaping Ridge growing up, but I think it's more like translate to Scooting Ridge or something like that. And it has this whole huge story, and I don't know if you want to hear the story because it doesn't have much to do with rain. <laughs> but, but essentially... Um, Maybe give us the... The rundown version. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, essentially, I believe it was some Mexican soldiers had come up, and the Navajos knew that they were going to be attacked, so they ran up to this... Um, hard to get to plateauish area and um, Mexicans tried to come one way and the other then it didn't work and then they came up at night and they massacred um, the people up there and there was a story about a woman who um, had been given a rope to tie around herself and her baby to, to kind of come down this like slit crevice and be lowered down and she put it on wrong and ended up killing herself and her baby. Um, so that's the history of this, but, but in terms of, you know, water and rain and what once was, right? So we hear the stories often from our grandparents and great-grandparents who, who tell stories of rain, like there always used to be rain and things were green 
and our plants, the plants that they planted always had enough water to grow and irrigation, you know, there wasn't too much irrigation going on in their time. But now we're to a point where we, you know, get extremely low amounts of rainfall. And so irrigation is necessary and um, farming now is, you know, we don't do it as much, I think, anymore. It's something that we've lost as times have gone on. But, um, but there is that idea when I juxtapose my time spent in New York where we got tons of water and tons of rain to the canyons and the land in New Mexico and Arizona. <clears throat> There's a very stark difference in land and um, and so when I think of rain um, I also think of the stories that we tell in our creation in the second world when coyote stole water monsters baby and um, no one knew Coyote had a water monster's baby under his robe until the waters started rising and flooding the earth because he because water monster was looking for her baby. And so there's all of that in here. Mm -hmm. Those poems are also in here. Um, and then what it means to get too much rain, right? Mm. Too much water. What does that you know? What does that mean? And and rain scald the term is also called rain rot and it's um it's kind of this skin disease for horses and when they get too much water and it it, it like mats and and their hair kind of falls mm -hmm. off and it looks really patchy and ugly and gross it's interesting because rain lots of other in so many traditions you know rain and water is life and mm -hmm. it's renewal and it's you're kind of exploring in some ways some of the inverse it's yeah. it's what was past and is no more or it, Oh, there's there's danger, right? Yeah. In, in too much. Yeah. Hmm. So so there's there's all of that, and I mean even the cover, and this is why I, well, Kara Romero is a wonderful photographer, um, and this piece on the cover is just I think it's just gorgeous. But it really captured, um, you know that, that thought of what it means to have too much water. Um, even when there is a time when we need water. Mm -hmm. so. Well, we only have a few minutes, um, a few minutes left. I wanted to kind of ask one last kind of perhaps weird question. Um, when I think about language, um, and in the desert Southwest, um, there's specifically poetry, right? Cause it's, it's language, but it's also symbolism and it's imagery and you know, what kind of comes to my mind immediately is, you know, the prevalence of, of, uh, of petroglyphs and pictographs and, you know, these um, images or, or forms of language, you know, that um, people's etched into, I mean, etched into the earth, right? And yeah. thousands of years later, we, we, we view them. And I don't think, I don't think you probably view your poetry as you etching, <laughs> you know, or inscribing your language and imagery and stuff into the earth, but do you see any? Do you see any relationship there, or in, in how you? I mean, when you go to these sites and you see these things, do you do you feel a kinship? Do you feel a connection there? As you also are by profession, kind of involved in in in, in recording ideas and feelings and and preserving them. Yeah. Um. I've I've never really thought about it. 
that way, in that way, but when you started talking about um, petroglyphs and things like that, it, it does, like it does make sense because those are stories that they're telling and things that are notable um, that are happening to their people and and I feel like yes there there is right now for our people we're in drought metaphorically and literally, <laughs> literally. and um, and we have cause to look to ceremony right there there is as a society um, as a people and even individual like we need healing and we need um, it's just something that we stand in need of right now and um, you mean Danae and, and and America yeah more broadly yeah Danae and America so how would you hope that you know some random white guy like me you know <laughs> would get from picking up this book versus what you would hope that someone maybe from your own community or from Cove would would what would that what, what kind of experiences you hoping people will have with your work um yeah so emotion like I feel like you, like you said you were like I feel these emotions but I'm not sure like can't pinpoint exactly and especially in strips the poem that I read earlier um you know that is meant to be disjunctive that is meant to be um a whole bunch of different parts kind of scrambled and um but i'm hoping that the emotion is still there because for me in in this book and in in my writing right now emotion is everything and i like um i focus on emotion because it's the human experience right so just you know it doesn't matter who you are where you come from we all feel loss and we all feel um, different emotions and I think that in that way I'm hoping someone who's non-Navajo or non-native can pick this up and say oh okay like I feel something that the writer has felt but also that this is the same that I have felt this too and in that kind of close a gap between peoples it opens our feeling anything like yeah. opens our hearts up, allows us to connect with other people and to even if we don't understand why or how. Right. right? Yeah. I often, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in the outdoors, and one of the big reasons is because when I'm, you know, up on the top of a mountain, you know, I I, I feel something, mm -hmm. and it makes me feel more uh, more more human. Um, it also makes me feel as a human that I'm connected to something bigger. And um, I think the best art, hopefully, should do the same thing. And I think your poetry definitely does. I don't know if that's what you were aiming at, but that's what it's done for me. Um, well, I want to let you get back home. Um, I know it's been a really long day. Um, do you have any kind of last parting words? No, I think I think that's it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Tacey. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. I'm Brendan Rensink, and I serve here as the host, producer, and engineer, and pretty much everything else of the podcast. So if you have any praise, 
or critique, I guess you can probably send it my way. I also serve here at the Red Center as the Assistant Director and as an Assistant Professor in the Department of History. So please contact me if you have any questions, not just about the podcast, but about the Red Center, our events, our funding, or anything else. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. You can find him at micahdahlanderson.com. That's Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll go ahead and include a link in the episode description. If you live here in the Intermountain West, let me also mention our digital public history project, Intermountain Histories. You can visit it at intermountainhistories.org or download the free mobile app by searching for Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. With this website and free mobile app, you can explore and read carefully curated histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. Each is researched and written by students and professors at universities around the region. Otherwise, please subscribe to the podcast or follow us on Facebook or Twitter to receive notification when the next episode goes live. We have many more fascinating conversations on the horizon and hope that you'll join us.